0: Everybody, welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hi. Today on the show, we are going to talk about the 2012 documentary and the case associated with it called West of Memphis. This is, I know it's only 2012, so over 10 years ago but it's two and a half hours of a really interesting examination of the failure of justice in the case against the West Memphis Three. So if you're not familiar with that case, we'll give you some introduction. And also we, I think we both solidly recommend this
1: documentary. It's a classic. It is. The documentary, I hadn't seen it before. I know the case very well. This was your first run through the doc. This was my first run through the doc. And we've talked about wrongfully accused individuals on this show before. We have, we have. This was a classic case because, you know, we find out that in the end it's everybody's worst nightmare. But, you know, a lot of times when kids go missing or kids are murdered, oftentimes it's the result of a parent or a step-parent or, and this case was really interesting because the parents were ruled out pretty early on so, just to give like a brief introduction to the case, it's um, the West Memphis Three were uh, subsequently convicted of murder and remained in prison for more than eighteen years. Three teenagers, Jesse, Miss Kelly, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin, were arrested for the murders of three eight-year-old children. Do you remember what year this was that this happened? Nineteen ninety-three. Nineteen ninety-three. Okay. What ended up happening once they went to prison was that there were people who um, firmly believed that these three boys had been wrongfully convicted. They were convicted actually quite quickly, and we we've talked about this on shows before, where um, interrogation techniques can be used to really wear somebody down to the point where they're admitting to things one just to get out of the situation because it it's so tormenting. Two, the amount of brainwashing and tormenting that happens in in interrogation is the person is gaslit for so long that they start to believe that what they're being accused of may have happened and they were turned against each other and they, they happened, all three of them happened to have, you know, not the greatest reputations in the town. Yeah. I mean, I think part of one of the reasons why they were convicted in Mm -hmm. my opinion
0: besides so much miscarriage of justice (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, is that they were 16 to 18 year old kids and they were boys and they were not taking it seriously. And they were flipping off cameras and making fun of the proceedings and acting really bizarrely and not afraid. They just were not connected to it. Like being real, as if right, because Damien was sentenced to death originally, yes, and the other two twenty-year sentences and another with for life imprisonment, so it was obviously very seriously. But in in the court of public opinion, they were not
1: they came off like psychopaths. Well, they did. And do you, well, I know you remember this, Shannon, but for those of you who haven't listened to our Amanda Knox episode, which I believe was season two or three. Yeah, beginning of
0: season two. um,
1: You know, a lot of the feedback that she got was the way that she presented during her, uh, the accusation was that she, uh, you know, appeared guilty because of how she presented. And one of the things that I remember Shannon talking about on that show is never forgetting that we have to, really keep in mind the context of a situation, not just the content. And what Shannon spoke to during the Amanda Knox episode was, um, where was she developmentally, right? And she was even older than these three guys. And they were kids with, like Shannon said, there was a a level of this that maybe disbelief or dissociation from what was actually going on. And they had already been three kids that this little town saw as uh, delinquents. And so in some ways they just owned it, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, they dressed like one of, you know, Damien who got the worst, worst of it was like a little goth kid. Yeah. He had like black hair and he looked what he looked like. He just, you know, pale skin dressed the part like, and satanic panic was a big thing then. So, mm he just fit the mold of what society it's like being, you know, we get convicted on how we look and how we act oftentimes. I mean, you know, this from all of your court experience.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So he had been one of the biggest, um, I think aggravating factors in this case was the district attorney had interviewed people who could confirm that Damien was a Satanist. (laughs) And somehow this devil worshiping thing caused him to go out and and kill these little boys. So this was a time where, you know, you're thinking it wasn't so much the same era as like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, but that satanic panic was still very much a thing. Mm -hmm. And so that was their smoking gun. There was no evidence. No, um,
0: they talk about it as emotional bias. There was a ton of emotional bias in the court.
1: So there was that piece, right? There's emotional bias towards these kids. The other thing that we know happened was there was real contamination with the way evidence was presented and the way that evidence was dealt with at the scene. And none of that was ever really uh, addressed in the uh, initial hearings, which is a huge problem because these children had family members that were allowed to go to the scene and that was never questioned at all. It's mind boggling how these family members were immediate. I think only one father and it was an innocent father had been accused and he had an alibi. Mm -hmm. Nobody else was questioned.
0: It's pretty crazy. I mean, the really interesting and I think well done many of the well done things about this documentary is that, it does what good documentaries do, which is it sets you up with what happened and the the sensationalism of this case. Three eight-year-old boys murdered, you know, and then three other 16 to 18-year-old boys arrested for those murders. It was just very sensational, exactly what the media, you know, and think, remember, 1993, so different kind of media, but exactly what would be sensationalized in our media, right? Mm. Like such a story. And if they were devil worshipers and satanic, you know, demon people, like, and they looked the part, like they were like, they were casting a movie. And then this documentary over the course of two and a half hours, meaning three different episodes, I think, slowly unravels Mm -hmm. everything and you every single thing every single way they presented how these boys were guilty is unraveled by the end Mm -hmm. and i think it's because like what in like 2007 there was new forensic evidence or something
1: yeah well what's interesting is i'm trying to remember what it was that it was through the work of like Eddie Vedder and several of these celebrities that had been keeping in contact with, especially with Damien Eccles in prison mm-hmm. and fighting for his innocence that a, there was a collective yep. that kept these boys, you know, their case open in a way, even though they were rotting in prison.
0: They were advocating for they a, were like, advocating. free Me- the Memphis Three is what they kept saying.
1: Because something wasn't right it was obvious there was political agenda in in the way that it uh, the the trial went the contamination the the evidence um they didn't investigate properly they profiled all these things so they kept this case open and and years later and this is where i need to go back and look i'm trying to remember what it was and shannon maybe you remember of what brought this stepfather back into the light of being tried
0: oh john douglas I think yeah. i believe I don't, I don't remember specifically but in 2007 there was new forensic evidence was mm-hmm. presented and one of the reasons why it not he came back into the forefront is because the lawyer stayed on it and all these pro bono you know the crowd it kept in the In the law's eyes, in other words, they kept doing appeals. They kept trying to get it done, and in July of 2007, they got this new uh, forensic genetic material recovered from the scene. Uh, And so then in 2010, there was a decision by the Arkansas Supreme Court with the new DNA evidence and then also the potential of the juror misconduct that ended up. That's right.
1: That's right. And then there were also two pieces of evidence. So they, um, they realized that the knife that, that was apparently used had, that had been one of the boys' mm-hmm. knives had yep. been thrown into the lake like a long time before yeah. that. Yeah. And then they also figured out that um, there were post mortem, the, the wounds were post mortem. And so the interpretation of the wounds in the initial trial were incorrect. And they preface how they knew that and still allowed yes. that to. All the misconduct. Yeah. Yeah. So they put together that it ended up being one of the boys' stepfathers who ended up having a, a, a jealousy, I think oh, right Yeah
0: and you know I you know I think one of the other things that happened just to before we move on is that though there were uh, witnesses that started recanting their testimony. Right. There were witnesses that had originally said that they had seen this kid or that kid or, or what have you. And then, uh, I remember the one woman recanted her testimony. No, I never, I
1: never, that never happened. I lied. That's right. And then Eddie Vedder, um, Natalie Maines and Johnny Depp started to raise funds and which drew attention. And once they started to look at this father, this guy got an attorney and was basically saying, you're defaming me and I I don't know why they're saying things about me. And so it was really because of these celebrities that this case reopened. And the innocence project was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: uh, Aside from the celebrities, Yeah.
1: So God, this case is huge and it's amazing to think that it was open for as long as it was. Even these boys were sitting in prison, the amount of people that were fighting for them. And something I was saying to Shannon, before we started recording was this, once the verdict was made and these three boys went to prison for the mothers of the boys who were killed, there was closure. So when Eddie Vetter and some of these other guys started to open this back up, these families were really traumatized because they could not imagine that they hadn't caught the right people right and they were like how dare you reopen this and Mm -hmm. we have the right people in prison and so that was really um traumatizing for the families absolutely Mm -hmm. i mean and especially you know
0: in 94 they appealed the convictions like practically immediately after they were convicted they appealed the convictions and but they were upheld right on direct appeal they were upheld and you know they kept in 1996, they were preparing another appeal. And then in 2007, like I was saying, they petitioned for a, a retrial based on the statute permitting post-conviction testing of DNA evidence due to technological advances that had been made since 94. So that's really why what I was mentioning before is mm-hmm. that, you know, the advances in, in DNA evidence, which we've seen so, in so many of these cases, is the reason why they could they could argue hey you know we've come a long way let's 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 do this again so that we we make sure we're doing the right thing and so there were this the knife that you mentioned mm-hmm. then there were the teeth imprints that were supposedly on the genitals because the original case it was like they had been, all the, all the boys had been raped and so they thought that the satanists had mutilated the genitals but what really had happened is that they post-mortem, the animals were biting and scratching and eating the soft material right. of the genitals. And mm-hmm. so it turns out, no, there was no satanic ritual on the yeah. boys' genitals. And then Vicki Hutchinson's rec- uh, recanted her testimony and originally, you know, she says it was because of police coercion that she originally lied all about it. And so in 2003, she recanted her statements and said that every word of what she gave the police was a complete
1: fabrication. God, can you imagine just yeah. knowing that no. someone testified against you and knowing they were blatantly lying it's, and with such conviction? Right. And, I mean, and- the
0: amount of things that happen, because then it's like, then the DNA testing, right? And then they find out in 2008 or whatever, along the way, they're retrying, right? They're doing a retrial or whatever. And then there's jury misconduct mm-hmm. in 2008. <laughs> and then they request a new trial. Like, it's it's just, it goes on and on Anything and on. Anything that could go
1: wrong went wrong.
0: And then, you know, what kind of what it rounds out to be before the boys were let free because this was a case of all three boys being innocent is then they had to do this plea deal yes. to get released. And we see this a lot in these cases that mm-hmm. we've talked about that are, you know, from through the innocence project and reversed and all of this thing is uh, they have to do a plea plea deal in order to get out. In other words, they have to say, while verbally stating their innocence, I guess because I did see them adjudicate, like with the plea deal and the release, but it's you know it's time served. That's so they're right. basically saying, "I did it, and mm-hmm. please let me out."
1: The Innocence Project is really good. I testified in one case for the California Innocence Project, and I find that a lot of times these um, these wrongly accused folks end up in prison because of how they presented. The case that I was on was they, they assumed that by her reaction to the 911 call that she was guilty because of, I don't know, a, a woman's supposed to have a certain level of emotion or something. So my testimony was on just standardized reactions to trauma and I talked about how there isn't one way <laughs> to respond. Now, I was one of many witnesses in this, but it's interesting that there was something very similar here, which is, you know, they used their history of drug abuse. They used his affiliation with, you know, Satanism or whatever they thought it was that there wasn't really any hard evidence. It was just, you look like this.
0: And you've been arrested for like shoplifting yes. and different things. Cause you're a kid and that's unfortunately what you've done. And mm-hmm. You know, maybe he was on the wrong path, or whatever the fuck we want to say about that. But like, he wasn't—he wasn't, he wasn't uh, guilty of murdering three young boys, that's for sure.
1: So Terry Hobbs was the name of the—that's correct—the perpetrator, and he, you know, the, the attention to him comes much later. Police never named him as a suspect or charged him, and he was the husband or the stepfather to S- Stevie, whose mother was Pamela Hicks. And he worked as an ice cream delivery man. I'm sorry if that does not seem like a trope in a horror film. I just film. think
0: of the Mercedes man, that series and those yes. books by Stephen King with the yes. ice cream. <laughs> it's just like ugh.
1: So, yeah, that's it ended up being after all of this.
0: Yeah, so on August 19th, 2011, Eccles, along with Baldwin and Muskelly, entered an Alford Alford plea, and maybe Kathy can tell us what that is. But while while asserting their innocence, the the judge sentenced them to 18 years and 78 days, which is basically time served, and levied a suspended suspended sentence of 10 years. So, you know, Eccles' sentence was reduced to three counts of first-degree murder, So this is the thing is they had to say they, they did it, you know, they, their sentence was reduced and then it's Mm -hmm. time served. And so then uh, they reached that plea deal, which allowed all of the three men to be released from prison and, you know, get their possessions back and go see their families. And in the documentary, they do show them now and, talk about a little bit. I mean, this is from 2012, so we don't know what's going on right now, 10 years later, but you know,
1: yeah, the Alfred plea, I don't know much about it. The way that it's described is that it's, um, a defendant in criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence, but admits that the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Yeah, it's basically the sort of loophole plea the justice system has figured out of how to get out of themselves. (laughs) In other words, we made a mistake, but we're not going to say we made a mistake because we actually don't have the ability to prosecute anybody else for these crimes. Right. But we're going to let you out. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks so much for your patronage at the prison. Right.
1: So, you know... To think about how long these kids had to sit in there before they got justice, and to know how many years of their lives—and we know that this happens all the time, especially to people of color—to think about the amount of people who are in the prison system right now who are innocent is really just depressing well. And I to imagine think why about.
0: another reason why this case was so famous is because it's three white boys.
1: That's right, especially in the nineties. In you know. Midwestish. In the way south, in, in the where, the south. Arkansas. Yeah. In the south. So, you know, it's um yeah.
0: Okay. Thank yeah. you so much for listening to this episode of Terror Talk. We hope uh, you have a great day. I hope you listened to our episode last week on the Jeepers Creepers case, the guy that inspired those movies. And we hope you very much come back on Fridays for our horror shows. We have a lot of fun with those. So thanks so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.